0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. We overview the whole book of Numbers with a focus on chapter 5. The book of Numbers. Israel is leaving Mount Sinai. The Bible Project provides an excellent video overview of Numbers. If you want to check that out at ObserveTheWord.com. Numbers is notoriously challenging to structure. Every commentary lines up things a bit differently. The Bible Project division's nice. Viewing the book as a travel log, they see Israel camped at three locations and traveling in between, which makes a five-part division of the book. In the first chapter, the people are still at Mount Sinai. Then they're on the move. Then they camp at Paran. Then they're on the move, and they end up in Moab, just across the Jordan River from Canaan. That's a helpful perspective. I prefer a simpler three-part division of the book. There is one literary element that really stands out in the book of Numbers. It's where the book gets its name. God tells Moses to take a census of all the men of fighting age, 20 years and older. And the report of that first census comes right away at the beginning of chapter 1. And then much later, God commands Moses to take a second census, which is recorded in chapter 26. A full report is given there, just like the first census, with a list of all the fighting men over 20 from each tribe. The first census counts up the fighting men of the first generation out of Egypt before they set out for the Promised Land. The second census counts up the fighting men of the second generation after they've arrived in the wilderness of Moab and before they enter the Promised Land. The text in between, from 10 11 to the end of chapter 25, tells the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness. So there's a census at the beginning and a census at the end, with 40 years of wandering in between. Along with a census, the beginning and ending sections are also mostly laws related to entering the land. There is no death of Israelites recorded in those two sections at the beginning and end. And that's even with the fact that there's a major battle after the second census. There must have been death, but no death is mentioned All the recorded deaths in Numbers occur in that middle section, emphasizing the rebellion of the first generation and the consequence of that rebellion. That point's made after the second census in Numbers 26, 63 to 65. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. When you look at the numbers from the first and second census side by side, the numbers remain fairly consistent with a little bit of change. Only Manasseh has a large gain growing from 32,200 to 52,700, and only Simeon has a great loss, dropping from 59,300 to 22,200. I'm not sure what to make of the growth of Manasseh, though it does justify half of the tribe settling on the east side of the Jordan and the other half tribe settling on the west side in Canaan. The loss of numbers in Simeon fits with the prophecy by Jacob in Genesis 49 7 that they would be dispersed and scattered through Israel. We mentioned that before because that prophecy was given to both Simeon and Levi. And Levi is going to be dispersed as the priests, So they don't have their own inheritance, but they're dispersed throughout. Uh, the census shows that Simeon dropped by more than half. And then once in the promised land, Simeon is going to settle in the midst of Judah and never be referred to again. The big theological point of the census, however is in the bottom line. At Sinai, the number of fighting men is required as 603,550. After 40 years in the desert and the dying off of the entire first generation, the number of fighting men has only dropped by about 1,800 men, down to 601,730. Remember that the Pentateuch was not written for the first generation out of Egypt. They've all died. Moses wrote the Pentateuch for the second generation. He's giving them the answer to the three essential questions. Who's our God? Who are we? What's our mission? The record of the census speaks this message to this generation of Israelites. Here's the reality. God rescued your parents out of Egypt. He cut covenant with them at Sinai. He promised to give them the fertile land of Canaan. They got there and they rebelled. They refused to go in. You are camped now on the wrong side of the Jordan River, what are you going to do? You don't have any more or any less fighting men than they had. Your situation is essentially the exact same as their situation. You have the same opportunity your parents had, but it's not on them anymore. It's on you. It's your turn. This is the time of your generation. What are you going to do? The book of Numbers leaves that question open. We don't know what this second generation out of Egypt is going to do. And in a sense, it is a question that never ends. Every generation must face the same question. You must face the same question. We must face the same question. This is not written for your fathers. This is written for you. What will you do? Turn away? or step up in faith. Over the next several lessons, we're going to consider the narrative of Numbers and look at some of the significant passages in that narrative. There's also a lot of law in Numbers, more do's and don'ts than we have in either Exodus or Deuteronomy. But mostly we've met our objective for this series in regard to the law. We're not taking a verse-by-verse walk through the Pentateuch. This is an overview to help equip you in your own understanding and study. So, we'll not spend much more time in the law code here in Numbers. The book is a reminder that the legal do's and don'ts of Torah come to us in the context of narrative. We normally think of Numbers as a book of narrative, the wandering of the Israelites, but it's got law all over the place, mostly in the beginning and end, but even a little in the very middle. The law of Moses is not abstracted out of real life narrative, the law is embedded in the context of God's story and God's interaction with his people. I do want to address one legal issue while we're in Numbers, and I'm going to go ahead and do that since the relevant passage is here among the law code of the first major section of Numbers, which is 1 to 1010. While discussing the cleanliness code in Leviticus, we recognize that various Mosaic laws seem to devalue or even degrade women. And we notice that a woman is unclean longer for the birth of a girl than the birth of a boy. I promise to come back to that problem. So that's the issue I want to address in this lesson. I've given you a brief overview here of the book of Numbers and the three-part structure. Now we're going to address the question of whether the laws of Moses devalue women. And we're going to start with a very odd text in Numbers 5. Then I'll address one other text from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. Numbers 5, 1-31 is quite odd. I'm going to read the whole thing because I want you to listen and allow yourself to respond to the text emotionally, rationally, whatever. Don't try to spiritualize it. Just take it in as a law of society. This is Numbers 5, 1-31. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, And a man has intercourse with her, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she's undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she's not been caught in the act. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she's defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest, and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near, and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, and put it into the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord, and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall have her take an oath, and shall say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, And if you have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, by the Lord's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll, and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterward he shall make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself, and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her, and her abdomen will swell, and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, being under the authority of her husband, goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear the guilt. What's your response to this law? How does it make you feel? I generally get two responses from students. One, this is a really strange ritual, almost like magic. Two, it's really unfair to women. If the husband's jealous, why does the woman have to be put through all that humiliation just to satisfy his suspicions? And what about the man? What if the woman's jealous? Why is there only a law making the woman go through a ceremony and not the man? Old Testament law was written into a very different culture. One of the purposes of law was to mitigate the damage of sin in society while promoting basic order. And as we saw in a previous lesson with the certificate of divorce, some of the laws are given not to express God's desired will for human relationships, but to minimize the effects of hard hearts. And it may be that some of the laws which seem to dishonor women We're actually there to protect women. I think that's the case with this adultery test. Let's think about what the situation in ancient Israel might have been like. What happens if a man becomes jealous of his wife, convinced she is unfaithful? In an ancient culture, the man's convinced his wife is committing adultery. What might be the result? Well, if it stands on the testimony of the one man alone, she might be executed. Or if she has a child, the jealous husband could deny that child's legitimacy, labeling the child a bastard. What law exists to protect the public reputation of a woman suspected by her husband? The case here of a woman performing a ritual and then God being called to punish her has some similarity to the ancient idea of trial by ordeal. The law of Hammurabi from the 18th century Babylon employs trial by ordeal. Here are a couple of excerpts from the law of Hammurabi. The first sets up the idea. The second applies the idea to adultery. If anyone bring an accusation against a man, and the accused go to the river and leap into the river, if he sink in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house. But if the river prove that the accused is not guilty and he escape unhurt, then he who had brought the accusation shall be put to death, while he who leapt into the river shall take possession of the house that had belonged to his accuser. It's really important to know that swimming was not a skill recognized and taught in the ancient world. Ancient Near Eastern people had a great fear of water because they didn't know how to swim. In this law, The person who jumps in the river is expected to drown. If they do, the river God has judged them guilty. If they somehow live, then the river God has saved them, proving their innocence. Here's the part that applies to adultery. If the finger is pointed at a man's wife about another man, but she is not caught sleeping with the other man, she shall jump into the river for her husband. If the finger is pointed, means a wife has been accused, and that wife is expected to jump into the river. Doesn't sound so bad until we realize that ancient Near Eastern wives couldn't swim. What's the expected result of the woman who jumps in the river for her husband? Well, she's going to drown. So imagine jumping in a river, never having learned to swim. And that's the old Babylonian test for adultery. Now, when we go back to the test in Numbers 5, What does the woman have to do, and what is the expected result? Some dirt from the tabernacle floor is mixed with holy water, along with the ink used to write out the curse, and then the woman drinks it. What do we expect to happen? Absolutely nothing. This should have no effect at all. Drinking a little dirt and ink is not going to have any effect, much less make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. The Babylonian Code assumes guilt unless miraculously proven innocent. The Hebrew code assumes innocence unless miraculously proven guilty. Now let's consider again the reality of honor and shame. This would be a shameful ritual for the woman to have to go through. But in the end, she is, in all likelihood, going to be publicly justified. Her honor is restored by the ritual. The man, on the other hand, is going to be publicly shamed. He has voluntarily admitted that he thinks his wife has gone to another man. That is pretty shameful. But then after the ritual, he's going to be shown in public to have been wrong and to have exposed his wife to a shame that she did not deserve. And that's going to be even more shameful for him. One student commented how unfair this law is. You know, the man could bring her again and again before the priest anytime times he feels jealous. Well, first, if the priests are decent men at all, I don't think they would let a man continue to subject his wife to this ceremony again and again when she is again and again proven innocent. Second, the ceremony shames the man. So I don't see this happening, whether the priests allow it or not. You don't do this over and over. You don't want that kind of public shame. And third, yes, it's unfair. Yes, it is certainly unfair that a decent woman has her character questioned and must then go through a public ritual. Law is often dealing with the unfair and the unjust, struggling to minimize the effect of sin in already broken human relationships. The law is not going to fix this broken relationship. It's only minimizing the effect on the woman. I don't think that this law is teaching the high moral standard of what God desires for his people. God desires for husbands and wives that they join together as one flesh and walk together in love, respect, trust, and mutual forgiveness. But people are sinful and relationships are often dysfunctional. So some of the laws exist to mitigate the damage of of that dysfunction, of that sin. A truly righteous person would act according to a much higher standard. I think of Joseph. Mary was pregnant. He was one of two people absolutely sure he wasn't the father. He had never slept with Mary. Her infidelity was clear to any sane man, but he didn't bring her up on public charges for breaking the betrothal. He didn't accuse her before priests priest. He didn't ask for some kind of ritual to be performed. He wasn't yet married, so he simply sought a quiet end to the engagement. That's the behavior of a righteous man. He shows his character further when Gabriel tells him that Mary is still a virgin who is miraculously pregnant. He believes God and goes ahead with the marriage, even though the pregnancy is proof to everyone that Joseph must have slept with Mary before marriage. He takes the shame on himself. So with this law in numbers, we're not looking at it as the right course of action for a righteous man to follow. It's not that kind of law. It's a law mitigating sin in society. So what's the point of the law? The language of this law is stated from the man's perspective and comes across as being against the woman. But I think in reality, this law exists to protect that woman who's in a very difficult situation, if she is required to go through the ceremony, then she has public and legal proof that she did not commit adultery unless unless something strange happens and her abdomen swells and her thigh wastes away. If what we expect to happen happens, then she has proof that she's not an adulterer. And there's no reason to believe that she's not going to be justified. Through the ritual. The outcome of the law is completely in her favor. The protection afforded by the law applies to her and also to the status of a child born, you know, at the time of the accusation. Legally, she's been publicly justified and any child has been publicly proven to belong to the father. The child is legally legitimate. Culture matters a lot when we look into these laws. Let's consider the next law It's the one I've been using as an example that one of the functions of law is to provide a legal code that mitigates the effects of evil in society. This is the law quoted to Jesus by the Pharisees regarding a certificate of divorce. It's in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The focus of this law is not on the certificate of divorce. This is case law that assumes a certificate of divorce and then focuses on a particular question about divorce. If a woman is divorced from one man and then remarries, if she is again divorced or her husband dies, can she remarry her first husband? The answer is no. This law answers a specific question, but in doing so raises a number of other questions that are not addressed in Torah. It's another reminder of how little law were given in the Pentateuch. Whereas modern society may have a whole book on divorce law or books of divorce law, the Torah only has a few verses. It's not enough to put into practice other decisions have to be made. The leaders of Israel would have to fill in the law in order to put it into practice. For example, under what circumstances could a husband write a certificate of divorce? We're not told. And this was the ongoing debate the Pharisees were trying to draw Jesus into. A group of Pharisees argued that anything the husband defined as indecent was justification for a certificate of divorce. If he didn't like the way she cooked dinner, that was indecent, and she could be given a certificate of divorce. Another group of Pharisees argued that there must be some proof of something legally defined as indecent. Jesus indicates that the law was not given to make divorce easy, so I assume the second group was right, that the intent of God was not that a man could easily dismiss his wife. She must truly have committed indecency according to the law of Moses, if she was found to have lied about being a virgin when she got married or if she had failed the adultery test, or some proof of indecency could be shown, then a certificate of divorce could be granted. It wasn't required. Uh, a righteous man might not write out a certificate of divorce, but if that kind of indecency was shown to be true, then it could be granted. And that's the kind of argumentation that would have to happen in order for leaders of Israel to apply this law. They have to fill out the law according to what's not actually written or explained in Torah. The text doesn't just say what the requirements must be, so we leave that up to the elders and priests and judges to determine. They have to fill out what God's not provided. This is a case law about whether a woman can remarry her previous husband in the event that she's already been given a certificate of divorce. The answer is clear, no, she cannot. And the reason's not given, and I'm not sure exactly what the reason is, there is an issue of that being some kind of defilement. There seems to be a moral issue. There may also be other issues. I'm right now teaching a course for a church in Zagreb, that has a great ministry to asylum seekers from the Middle East. It just dawned on me recently, one night as I was teaching Old Testament, I was teaching the Old Testament to two Persians, an Assyrian and an Egyptian. I mean, talk about biblical. And they affirmed to me that some Muslim cultures in the Middle East allow a man to divorce his wife simply by repeating three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. There's nothing, no going before a judge, no certificate necessary. You don't need to involve the priests. I've been told that this law has been abused for the sake of sex and money. If a man divorces his wife and goes on a long trip, say on a pilgrimage to a different country, and has sex with a woman on the trip, then he is technically not committing adultery. You know, maybe it's sin, but it's not that bad sin, according to the custom. And when he returns home, he can remarry his wife. So a man could also divorce his wife for purposes of taxes or inheritance or dowry if there's some reason that it's going to work out better if the wife is divorced. And then he can remarry her after the matter is settled in his favor. So there's this potential of abuse of easily divorcing. And this law is preventing using easy divorce as a loophole to get out of other laws. Our third text is in Leviticus, so let's go back to the ceremonial law regarding a woman after birth. In Leviticus, we touched on the symbolism. A mother is not spiritually unclean when she gives birth. She's only symbolically unclean, and that was true any time a man or a woman came into contact with blood, and it fit with the sacredness of things associated with birth and with death. And so then there was a ritual, a simple ritual to go through to become clean again. And I also suggested that there was a benefit for the woman being declared richly unclean after birth, which resulted in an enforced period of convalescence at home. You know, She had to be at home a month. She was required to not go out and work and to not join in with communal worship. And that helps us when we think about this law in general, that maybe there was a benefit for the woman being declared ceremonially unclean. It's not shameful to be unclean after birth. There's great honor in giving birth. It's a ceremonial issue. But why the difference between the birth of a son and the birth of a daughter? Here's that section in Leviticus 12, 1 through 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speaks to the sons of Israel saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation cycle, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. Again, I don't know the full reasoning here. I'm just wondering whether there's any cultural explanation. One thought has come to mind regarding female circumcision. The law requires circumcision of the boy and then adds extra days for the baby girl. That covers the lack of circumcision for the girl. I mean, with a boy, cleanliness came after one week and then circumcision and then 33 days. If cleanliness came after a week and 33 days for the girl, then something's missing because the boy also had circumcision. But instead of circumcision for the girl, cleanliness comes by doubling the periods. She has two weeks at the beginning and then 66 days. So the extra days for the girl are in place of being circumcised. While the argument can be made that male circumcision has positive health benefits and certainly doesn't have any significant negative effects, female circumcision is painful, medically dangerous, and leads to lasting negative effects. And again, my Middle Eastern friends in my class affirmed to me that there are Muslim cultures today that still practice female circumcision. We don't have examples all the way back to the days of Moses, but we do have examples going back to approaching the time of Moses. There are cultures, there were then, there are now, that practice this awful ritual of female circumcision. Israelites never practiced female circumcision. I believe this law is one of the reasons why. It's clear here that something else must be provided in place of circumcision for the baby girl. Circumcision is not an option. Instead, the time period's doubled. I don't think this law is meant to devalue girls. I think it's intended to make the two cases basically equal. The male has circumcision plus a period of time, but the female has no circumcision but two periods of time. These three passages provide test cases on how to interpret Mosaic laws that seem to devalue Women. There are other challenging passages. I'll leave those for you to observe and to consider. The Old Testament is rough and real. It confronts sin head on in real society. And much of it we readily relate to. We see ourselves good and bad in the characters of the Old Testament, we see our own culture in the laws required. It's amazing how much still applies to us uh, 3,000 years, more than 3,000 years later. But then much of it's strange and disturbing. It doesn't fit or apply to our culture, and we don't understand what the point is. The last thing we want to do is just whitewash the Bible to cover over the rough spots and act as though it's not even there. On the other hand, for those of us who believe in Christ— We also accept his claim that he came to fulfill the law. Christ's followers declared the law of Moses to be holy, righteous, and good. They did not do away with it because it was unjust. God did away with it because something better had come in Christ, a new wineskin, the new covenant. But looking back at the law's teaching in regard to women, I keep two basic principles in mind. First, God established the equal worth and dignity of men and women in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 127, when he declared humankind to be created in his image, male and female, he created them. Second, the Mosaic law is holy, righteous, and good. And some passages bring these two principles into tension. How can it be holy, righteous, and good? This doesn't look like there's equality or, or equal valuing. Those are challenging verses. So I proceed on certain assumptions. I recommend these to you. When reading passages that seem to devalue women, assume that cultural realities you do not understand may be involved. Assume the law's or for a society in which women were at considerably more risk than your modern society. Consider whether the particular law exists as part of the civil law meant to mitigate sin in a hardened, sinful society. And consider whether other principles exist in the Torah that call believers to a higher standard of behavior than that which is required by the civil code. Do not whitewash the Bible. Let the rough parts stand whether you understand them or not. Do not speak mockingly or skeptically about something you may not yet fully understand in the Word of God. It is still the Word of God. We are going to trouble over some texts for years. We can't live with them and we can't live without them. We may never get them. We may never be comfortable with them. We entrust them by faith to God. In conclusion, I'd like to mention one more example. Along with laws that seem to devalue women, there are also texts that show the equality of women in the eyes of God. And looking back at the book of Numbers as a three-part work, the first part and last part are marked off by the two censuses of the two generations. These two parts mostly contain law code regarding entry into the promised land. The passage on the adultery test came in chapter 5. That's in the first major section of Numbers. The laws in the last major section of Numbers are marked off by a question about inheritance for women. That question is addressed at the beginning of that law code in Numbers 27 and then again at the law code in Numbers 36. This is the context. In the tribe of Manasseh, there was a man named Zelophehad, and Zelophehad was of that first generation out of Egypt. He died along with all the members of his generation. He had no sons, but he did have five daughters, Machlah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. These daughters come to Moses with a concern. This is Numbers 27.4. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. What do you think Moses said back to these women? Why do you speak among the men, you greedy women? You know, get back into your tents. No, Moses accepted the complaint as something to look into. The law so far given by God doesn't say anything about this question. So Moses goes to God. Something similar had happened earlier and was recorded in the first major section of Numbers. If some Israelites who were unclean during the Passover couldn't celebrate it, they want to know if it's okay if they celebrate the Passover on a different day. And like the daughters of Zelophehad, they came to Moses with a complaint asking for clarification. And Moses didn't presume to answer himself, but he said, wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command. That's Numbers 9-8. These two examples fit with what we've been saying about the law. It doesn't answer every question. These two cases also indicate to the leaders of Israel how to go about answering the unanswered questions. They are to seek wisdom from God in prayer. Just as Moses went to God in the earlier case, back in chapter 9, we see the same thing here in 27, verse 5. It says, Moses brought their case before the Lord. That is the case of the daughters of Zelophehad. What do you think God said about these daughters who want to claim the inheritance of their father? This is Numbers 27, six through eight. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. God hears their request and grants them inheritance. God values the daughters of Israel. To accurately understand God's perspective of women in the Torah, we can't just look at the problematic verses. We need to look at those tough passages. We also need to look at other passages like this one that show God's positive valuing of women. God doesn't say, honor your father. But that would have been perfectly fine in the ancient world. That would have been all they expected. Nobody expects anything more. But that's not the command we get from God. Honor your father and mother. That's the command of God. The mothers of Israel are to be honored. The book of Numbers is issuing a challenge to God the current generation, and is not just a challenge to the men. It is a challenge to the entire generation, to the mothers and fathers, to the sons and the daughters. Are you going to step up in faith? Genesis 1 and 2 present Adam and Eve as partners. They are both commissioned together to multiply together, to rule together, And to display the image of God together. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at ObserveTheWord.com.